Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jamie Boskett. I have the privilege of serving as the president and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'm thrilled to welcome all of you, a full house this evening, to the Robbins Family Forum here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And we are just over the moon to finally, at long last, after well over a year of planning, to be able to bring you all together in this wonderful partnership with the George C. Marshall Foundation and to have so many new friends here. As such, I would like to mention before we kick off this evening, of course, the Historical Society where you are this evening, uh, this is the oldest cultural organization in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Founded in 1831, we've been at this longer than anyone else. Uh, in fact, we're older than 50 of the, or older than half of the US states, uh, which is quite remarkable uh, when you put that in perspective. The uh, institution from that first founding in 1831 has now amassed a collection of some nine million items to speak to the rich history of the Commonwealth and to individuals like George C. Marshall. And as we have assessed those collections and thought about our future as an institution and started to welcome even more people year after year, uh, I think that we'd be the first to tell you that our most vibrant future is through collaboration and partnership, which is why working with great foundations like the George C. Marshall Foundation makes so much sense uh, to bring together people who care for history and particularly what our, our story is here in Virginia. So I'm thrilled to have you all with us this evening, and I think it's only appropriate as we kick off as well, considering our topic, I'd like to just ask if any of, uh, any of our guests tonight, if you've served in the United States military, if you would just raise your hand and be recognized. <laughs> Wonderful. And I would go a step further to assume we probably have a few VMI people with us this evening, right? <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And uh, it's now my great pleasure to turn it over uh, to the collaborator this evening, Russ Fletcher, who is the chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Marshall Foundation and acting president. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. And a very good evening to you, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of the Marshall Foundation, I thank the Virginia Muse Museum of History and Culture for hosting tonight's event. Special thanks go to, of course, you, Jamie, for all you've done. As also your able staff, I would like to also thank Graham Dozier and Andrew Talkoff as well for organizing the event, and also to Dominion Energy and its charitable foundation, headed by Hunter Applewhite for funding for the funding to make it all possible. So thank you all for your hospitality and generosity. For those of you unfamiliar with the George C. Marshall Foundation, we're a nonprofit organization located proudly on the post of the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia. Our principal assets include a museum and a library, which possesses a global archive that includes General Marshall's papers and other valuable research materials. Our sustenance depends entirely upon private support. We receive no publicly sourced funds. And if you're not a member of the Marshall Foundation, we urge you to become one, and that can easily be done by contacting us at marshallfoundation.org. So please join. It allows us to make events such as this possible. 
Our lecture this evening represents a special presentation of the Foundation's Legacy Series, which draws top scholars from around the globe to, dis to discuss topics involving people, events, and policies that General Marshall influenced directly or indirectly. It's special for a couple of reasons. The first is that it is being held outside of Lexington, which is unusual, and is here instead in historic Richmond. And the second is that we are celebrating the publication of tonight's special guest new book, the final of a monumental trilogy on FDR as Commander-in-Chief. Indeed, we are fortunate to have with us this evening leading scholar and prize-winning historian Nigel Hamilton. As an historian, Professor Hamilton comes to his profession and particularly to the period about which he is expert with an inside track. His father was the late Colonel Sir Dennis Hamilton, chairman and editor-in-chief of Times Newspapers, which includes the Sunday Times, whose courageous actions and leadership as commander of the battalion stationed at the bridgehead in Nijmegen, Netherlands, during Operation Market Garden in World War II, earned him the Distinguished Service Order. As the son of one of Bernard Law Montgomery's favorites, Professor Hamilton was around the great general from an early age. In fact, Monty took him while still an undergraduate at Cambridge to Chartwell, where as a guest of Winston and Clementine Churchill, he spent one highly impressionable weekend. I can only imagine. <laughs> I'll let Nigel tell that story. Professor Hamilton would go on to write a three-volume official biography of Field Marshal Montgomery winning the Whitbread Award in Biography in 1981 and the Templar Medal for Best Contribution to Military History in 1986. His most ambitious project to date is his trilogy on how Franklin Roosevelt won World War II as U.S. Commander-in-Chief. So here we are, less than a month away from the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings, which initiated the assault phase of Operation Overlord, a masterstroke of strategy and planning, the execution of which would result in the end of war in Europe a short but brutal 11 months later. Today, little is known or remembered of the stiff British resistance to Overlord and of the fact that the great invasion came very close to never taking place. Based on his new book, War and Peace, FDR's Final Odyssey, Professor Hamilton will now tell us that story and of how two men, President Franklin Roosevelt and Army Chief of Staff George Marshall, ensured that the great invasion did take place, thereby hastening an end to Europe's long nightmare. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Nigel Hamilton.
Thank you so much, Russ, and um, thank you very much for coming this evening. I've never seen so many faces in um, the uh, bookstores and museums and whatever it is where uh, I've been speaking and um, have yet to speak for the uh, 75th anniversary. But um, I feel I don't need to introduce myself because uh, <laughs> you've told my life story. <laughs> uh, I've spent, in, I feel I'm reaching the end of a, a uh, quite a long journey, really, uh, 10 years in the making. Um, I, I wrote a book called American Caesars um, it was lives of the American presidents from Franklin Roosevelt through to uh, George W. Bush. Um, and it was modeled on a famous Roman text, The Twelve Caesars by Suetonius several thousand years ago. And it was while I was researching that book that I realized that um, we really know very little about FDR in his role, his constitutional role as Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the United States. And the fact that he had been that Commander-in-Chief in the most violent war in human history and that nobody had written a full account of that command seemed to me wrong. And Therefore, I saw little alternative but to write a small book on the subject. <laughs> My publisher agreed. And at the, this was the first volume, The Mantle of Command. I have to say, when I sent the manuscript in, my editor said, Nigel, I've read the first, the 800 pages on, uh, on my, uh, he said, uh, it's a terrific read, and I've, uh, I've reached November of 1942. Where's the rest of the war? <laughs> so I said, well, please, I, I think this is such a, an extraordinary story, and it's a story which uh, certainly nobody in my old home country knows about, but very few Americans know about uh, the way Franklin Roosevelt uh, um, just before the war, took a battleship to meet Winston Churchill to set down the sort of moral basis for war if the United States was, uh, was attacked, was sucked into the war. Uh, that moral basis was called the Atlantic Charter, which Churchill didn't want to sign because it promised independence to... Uh, British colonies in particular. But he did sign it, and the president went home with General Marshall, who was pretty astonished. <laughs> um, and uh, together, the president and General Marshall uh, prepared a plan called the Victory Plan, which uh, they finalized just before Pearl Harbor. And uh, so the book becomes very dramatic with the uh, Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor. And the president realizes that uh, meeting the objective of the American chiefs of staff, namely 
in the victory plan, namely uh, to uh, follow a strategy, a strategy of Germany first and then Japan, because uh, without, if Germany was defeat, defeated, Japan would not last very long. Well, the president realized after Pearl Harbor that that was going to be quite a tough nut to crack uh, without much of a navy left and uh, with very few soldiers either. So uh, the president set about uh, recasting not so much the, the overall grand strategy of the war, which did involve Germany first, but how to get there. And he decided, uh, he overrode General Marshall's advice and decided that instead of launching a cross-channel D-Day type invasion in 1942 before American soldiers had any combat experience in, in modern warfare, uh, American forces would land in North Africa. And I have to say General Marshall was dead against it. <laughs> and the Secretary of War, Henry Marshall, bet the President of the United States that it would fail. Well, it didn't fail. Here they are on their battleships, uh, the President and Winston Churchill signing the uh, Atlantic Charter. And here's what happened in November of 1942 when American forces landed in North Africa. Operation Torch, a, an extraordinary success which established the United States uh, in uh, combat in North Africa. And so the second volume, which I assured my, pre my publisher would be the last, <laughs> Uh, took up the story at the beginning, at the end of 1942 and the beginning of 1943 when the president travels, again it, the book begins with a voyage, when the president travels for the first time a president flies in office on a flying boat to Casablanca. And what does he do there? He visits his commanders in the field General Eisenhower, General Mark Clark, George Patton, but also Winston Churchill once again, because he wants to set a, a new policy for the United States once major American forces meet uh, the Wehrmacht in battle, and that is a policy of unconditional surrender no negotiation with the Nazis. This is absolute, modern, total war. Uh, the Germans had already exterminated perhaps two million Jews by then. No negotiation with these bastards, excuse my language. Uh, and there he is making the announcement. Again, Churchill rather uh, uncertain about this, uh, but went along with it. And so uh, the president uh, leaves Casablanca, having had long talks with uh, General Eisenhower, uh, is quite certain that the United States needs to stay long enough in the Mediterranean 
to uh, engage in combat with the Wehrmacht, with Rommel and other senior German generals, uh, and prove itself on the modern battlefield using uh, especially modern air power, but also naval uh, help. And, and so he is delighted when only, whatever it is, three, four months later in May of 1943, an entire German and Italian army, the Axis army in North Africa, the entire army uh, surrenders unconditionally as the president had laid down to General Eisenhower. And shortly after that, American forces, together with British and Canadians, land in Sicily. And then conquer Sicily in a few, few weeks and continue with a, an amphibious landing in southern Italy. So now the story of 1943 is one of uh, a, a monumental learning process for the armed forces of the United States in modern warfare. And not just troops, but we're talking about commanders, those who failed in battle and were sent home, and those who, who succeeded, like General George Patton. There is only one problem. Winston Churchill, during this period, and that was, explains partly the subtitle for that. Do you see it? FDR's battle with Churchill. <laughs> Because Churchill was delighted by having American forces in the Mediterranean, uh, a British army uh, was victorious at the Battle of Alamein under Field Marshal Montgomery, and helped to crush the German forces between the British army coming from the east and American forces coming through from Tunisia in the west. So. Churchill was delighted to have American forces in the Mediterranean, but hated the idea of D-Day, of a, an amphibious invasion across the English Channel. After all, nobody had successfully launched a military invasion across the English Channel since William the Conqueror in 1066. And Duke Williams was his second attempt. <laughs> Even Hitler hadn't dared do it in the summer of 1940. It wasn't simply Winston Churchill's brave rhetoric in the summer, his finest hour, that stopped the Germans. And it wasn't only the Battle of Britain in the skies above England. It was the fact that that is a huge body of water and a nasty body of water. So Winston Churchill came twice to the United States in 1943 to plead with the American president and commander-in-chief of the American forces to dump the notion of D-Day. He foresaw a, an English channel running in blood. And to some degree, he had, uh, he was being perfectly reasonable in fearing what might happen if we moved ahead with that project. Uh, the British did mount a little sort of mini 
mini uh, D-Day at a place called Dieppe in the summer of 1942. It was a catastrophe. A thousand Canadians were killed in the first three hours. Killed, that's not the casualties, the wounded, the, most of them were uh, captured and spent the rest of the war in prison and war camps. But so clearly Churchill was right to fear the inevitable casualties in a cross-channel invasion that had not taken place in, in a thousand years. But the president and General Marshall were both clear that the only way to, f to defeat the Wehrmacht and force the Third Reich to surrender was by crossing the English Channel and creating a second front. Couldn't be done. Frigging about in the southern or eastern Mediterranean would leave Hitler master of Europe and the killing would go on. It had to be done. So the third volume picks up in November of 1943, as the President of the United States once again boards a battleship, crosses the Atlantic to meet with Winston Churchill. Churchill has, despite his objections to, to the D-Day plan, uh, despite all his predictions of doom and whatever, Churchill has actually signed up to the project in, in Quebec in the summer of 43. But a few, and the project is set to be uh, mounted, to be launched, first thing in the spring of 1944, the 1st of May, 1944. Churchill has signed up to that agreement, but the president has heard as he sets off to North Africa to meet with Churchill. Here's the USS Iowa, the latest American battleship at the time. The president has heard from his spies, <laughs> uh, his, his uh, informants, that Churchill is on the warpath and not against Hitler but against the President of the United States. Churchill is also on a battleship. I haven't got a picture of it here, uh, but he is on HMS Renown, heading for the same place. They're going to meet at the beginning of this final volume. They're going to meet in Cairo. And on board his, his battleship, Winston Churchill, who is a master of English writing and English rhetoric is penning an indictment of the president's strategy, claiming it's all wrong and that the Quebec agreement that he'd signed up to was simply a lawyer's agreement. And as we know, lawyer's agreements can be torn up. Winston says to his to uh, one of his advisors, whom he meets at Malta in the Mediterranean on his way to Cairo. He says, he, 
This is going to be a turning point in World War II. He says, this, this showdown, I'm going to have, this showdown I'm going to have <laughs> with the president is, is going to change history. He was determined that the D-Day plan should be shelved, delayed, abandoned. And FDR knows this. He has sat down, here's a photo of him on the board the ship with uh, his White House Chief of Staff, Admiral Leahy, with Admiral King, who was head of the United States Navy, and George Marshall. And we have the minutes of their conversations, or partial minutes of their conversations, in which they wring their hands at the thought that after all this learning process in the Mediterranean, how to defeat the Wehrmacht, all this process of learning in modern battle, the defeats they faced at Kasserine, for instance, in February of, of uh, 1943, after all they've gone through, with these battle-hardened American forces and airmen, Winston isn't going to go through with it. And they're all aware that they need to, to succeed in a, 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 an amphibious invasion of whether it's the Pas de Calais or uh, the Cotentin Peninsula, Normandy, wherever they land in northern France. This is going to be one of the great battles of history. And if the Brits basically chicken out, there's no way that the, the United States can really mount the invasion. In fact, General Marshall, in the discussions they have on board the battleship, says, well, perhaps we should just turn our attention to the Pacific. And the president says, no. We can't leave Hitler master of Europe, not when it's our whole war strategy is based on Germany first. And ironically, at the same time, we know from these diaries that I've been able to assemble, that Winston Churchill is saying the same thing. If we just refuse to do it, the Americans will be forced to turn to the Pacific. It is a pretty extraordinary development. It's probably the most critical moment in the history of World War II, and how many people in this audience know of it? Probably not a lot. It is almost a scandal to me <laughs> in terms of historiography. And people often ask me, well, if so, how come, how come we didn't know about this? Well, there are several reasons. One is that the president dies in 1945. He's been assembling his papers. He wants to write the story of World War II from his perspective. I was able to interview the last surviving uh, senior officer in the map room at the White House which was the uh, point at which all uh, top 
signals, communications came from Stalin, Churchill, Chiang Kai-shek, all came in, went out, but also uh, the, the most um, high-level intelligence and military communications. I was able to interview him. And it is, he had, I don't know if I can say this here, he'd been to Harvard. <laughs> he was a young uh, graduate student from Harvard and his professor was working in American intelligence in Washington and uh, so gradually the, uh, he recommended him so this uh, Lieutenant Commander Elsie was posted to the map room. And they, there was, uh, he, the, the uh, Lieutenant Commander Elsie began to uh, assemble FDR's wartime papers with the president, ready to write his memoirs. But uh, the president, uh, we, we may have time to talk a little bit about the second part of the book, which covers the president's fatal illness. but. Um, it's one of the tragedies for a historian uh, that FDR was not able to, to write his own account of the war. And, of course, Winston Churchill, who was almost 10 years older than the president, did survive the war, was the most wonderful writer, <laughs> and proceeded to write not just three volumes like, you know, <laughs> some of us, <laughs> but wrote six volumes of memoirs of how he had won World War II, which he called the Second World War. And for that, Winston Churchill rightly won, in my view, uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature. It is an absolute masterwork. He had left 10 Downing Street when he lost office in 1945. He was able to take all his secret government papers with him and had an army of uh, helpers, people who'd been um, working under him in the government uh, and who helped sort of collate everything. It is a masterly, masterly uh, series of books. But it does present Winston very much as the uh, chief architect and uh, um, director of strategy of World War II. Uh, and, you know, I think perhaps a little sadly, I mean, those people who write memoirs understandably want to put the best, <laughs> uh, give the best impression of their achievements. Um, that's perfectly understandable. What is less understandable is why historians have gone on uh, simply accepting Winston Churchill's view of the war, which basically was that the President of the United States was really just like a, 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 a very uh, generous uncle. <laughs> and um, I have to say I began these books with, a, I think, a pretty open mind. I had, uh, as Russ said, I had stayed as a young student uh, with Winston Churchill and Clemmy and two of their daughters. Uh, I admired Winston Churchill. I loved his writing. But I had become a military historian and uh, 
I simply couldn't, I, I couldn't accept uh, without question Winston Churchill's account of the war. So, as I explained earlier, I thought I would write this little book. The little book became a bit bigger and bigger book and led to a completely, uh, a, a completely new view, I think, of World War II, of the way that FDR uh, directed not only the strategy, the military strategy of World War II, but at every level, at every moment, at every interval, uh, would set the sort of moral basis for fighting the war and for what should follow the war. So we only have limited time this evening, but the book covers uh, the high point, the first half of the book is the story of how the president meets with General Eisenhower in North Africa, in Iran, and then in Tunis, and talks to him about uh, Winston Churchill. <laughs> uh, there's the president's plane, the sacred cow. <laughs> uh, and the president, having spoken to Eisenhower, having not only spoken with Eisenhower, but having listened to Eisenhower, having listened to some of Eisenhower's, uh, not only his, his senior officers, there's Eisenhower with his uh, chief of staff, but also with some young officers there to get a kind of first-hand impression of how Americans in the combat zone in North Africa felt about the war. So the president arrives in Cairo, ready for the showdown. <laughs> uh, Churchill calls it an indictment. And the Churchill says to uh, one of his advisors, I feel like a man uh, who's, who has one hand tied behind his back because of American stupidity. <laughs> he feels that the United States should go on supporting the British in the Mediterranean, that the British should attack the, uh, the Greek islands, the Dodecanese islands, Rhodes, should, should try and force the Dardanelles, which he'd tried to do in World War I and hadn't been very successful, that they should try and go into the Balkans when Americans' forces were still barely beyond Naples. Those of you who've been to Italy know it's no mean <laughs> territory to campaign in. Even the Romans found it pretty tough. Rome, Rhodes, the Dardanelles, the Crimea, anywhere but D-Day. You know, it is... It's, it's one of those things that has really been swept under the proverbial rug. How opposed, how determined Winston Churchill was at this moment in late November 1943 to stop D-Day. And the miracle is, 
and I can't unfortunately tell you the whole story this evening, but I have been able to, it's part of the reason it took me 10 years. <laughs> I have been able to follow this story, to document the story and to tell a truly extraordinary story about an American president who with the help of his army chief of staff faced Winston Churchill in Cairo and forced Churchill to back down and the two men, FDR and Churchill, fly to Tehran. The president has refused to cancel or delay D-Day. He's insisted upon it. He arrives in Tehran, here he is. He's at the top of his form. He's never felt better. He goes into the uh, summit with Stalin. And Stalin says, well, thank you, Mr. President. If you are really going to carry out D-Day in the spring of 1944, we Russians will launch a simultaneous offensive on the Eastern Front involving over a million men Operation Bagration, and we will crush the German Wehrmacht between us. Not only that, Mr. President, we will also, once Germany surrenders unconditionally, we will join you in your war with Japan, because Russia was still neutral in that. And we will send perhaps an army of a million men to help you into Manchuria. So from the president's point of view, this is all he ever dreamed of. As an outcome, he's full of beans. You can see him laughing there. Churchill less, <laughs> less pleased. In fact, Churchill is on record saying to his doctor uh, after the first night at Tehran, the, the doctor said, well, uh, Prime Minister, you, you, has anything gone wrong? <laughs> and Churchill says, a bloody lot has gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but nobly, he, he accepts two against one, and he signs, well, he had already signed that, but he agrees that British forces will participate uh, at least 50% on D-Day. And the president and Churchill go back to Cairo. And there the president uh, finally appoints not General Marshall, but General Eisenhower to be the supreme commander of D-Day. Now, that in itself is an extremely interesting story, which I don't think anybody, any historian, has ever really told uh, how the president decided against Marshall, and I, I, I would just briefly, it's in the book, but I would briefly explain my view, which is that the president never intended Marshall to go to Europe. He needed him in Washington. He was the most brilliant army chief of staff who'd ever, ever been in, in office. He was not only a superb administrator, but he was able to 
meet members of Congress and, and the Senate and explain, often in secret session, the reasons why so much money was being spent or why various decisions were being made. And the president couldn't see anybody, the president, in fact, who was always, he never did anything without testing the water, so to speak. He, he uh, contacted General Pershing from the First World War and said, General, uh, do you think, uh, what do you advise? And Pershing sent him a wonderful letter, which I've quoted in the book, saying, don't let Marshall go to Europe. He's too big for that. The British will force him to, uh, well, the British are determined to, to go on in the Mediterranean, and we can't have General Marshall uh, just stuck in a, bio, in, a, in, a, in a backwater. So the president, who, as we saw, has visited with Eisenhower at Tunis. They've, they've gone, spent a whole day together touring the battlefields. The president is quite confident in sending a message to, to Marshal Stalin to say that a supreme commander for overlord has been decided. He has decided it. He sends the message to General Eisenhower but then gets on the sacred cow and flies to Tunis to tell Eisenhower in person. That's the kind of president FDR was. There he is, again, looking a million dollars. Uh, Eisenhower, of course, delighted behind him. Uh, and the president even takes General Eisenhower uh, on his plane to Malta and to Sicily. He really wants to go to Italy, but the, uh, General Eisenhower, who's still commander-in-chief in the Mediterranean, allied commander-in-chief, says, uh, no, Mr. President, I, that, that, that could be a little dangerous at this point. <laughs> but they go to Sicily. The, the president uh, awards the Distinguished Service Medal to uh, General Mark Clark. And... Do you see the character behind Eisenhower in the top right? Uh, do we have a laser? Yes, we do. George Patton, yes. George Patton was, uh, his uh, career was rather under a cloud. He'd slapped uh, two American soldiers in a field hospital. There had been a scandal about it. He'd lost his command in Sicily and the president asked him to come up behind the jeep and said, George, you will command an army in the D-Day invasion. So this is the president we're talking about, which so many people don't recognize. I think probably the most effective American strategist in American history, when you think of the global war he was directing, which I think has gone largely unchronicled and undervalued. There he is about to go home. There's, I think that is Patton in the back there. And Mark, Mark Clark, who was decorated for his bravery at Salerno. And the president returns on the USS Iowa, 
back to America. He's greeted by members of the administration and Congress as a conquering hero. He goes to Hyde Park. He surrounded, spends Christmas in Hyde Park. It was 1943. D-Day is set for five months' time with his grandchildren. He makes a famous broadcast to announce the appointment, his appointment of General Eisenhower to be the supreme commander of the great attack. And then falls ill. At first, people think it's just flu. He can't give his normal State of the Union address. It has to be broadcast. He never gets better by the spring of 1944, just before D-Day. He is so ill that his daughter manages to get Admiral McIntyre, his uh, White House physician, to call in consultants. And thank God, a young American cardiologist, Dr. Brune, who was in the Navy, uh, diagnosed fatal heart disease and insisted that the president be given this highly toxic medication, Digitalis, saves the president's life. Uh, we'll come back to Mr. Churchill here. <laughs> and the president, I mean, this is somewhat, um, I've seen this photograph given as June of 1944, but I don't believe it. I mean, he, does, he looks too well there. But this is his famous D-Day prayer, uh, which apparently was heard by over 100 million people across the world. Um, really beautiful prayer. Uh, Goebbels, of course, who was not religious, uh, thought it an insult to Christianity. <laughs> uh, but uh, D-Day goes ahead. 6th of June, um, my father had been evacuated as a second lieutenant at Dunkirk. He went back on D-Day uh, as a 25-year-old uh, acting lieutenant colonel commanding a, a, a battalion of 1,000 men on the British beaches. 600 of them became casualties in the Battle of Normandy. But... Hitler had predicted to his generals that D-Day would be the, and I'm quoting, the deciding battle of World War II. That's what we should never forget. It's not just an invasion. It's the critical moment of World War II, certainly in Europe. And it is a an amazing test of courage and willpower and uh, thanks to General Marshall, logistical uh, uh, brilliance. It does decide the war. And uh, as Russ said, 11 months later, the Allies uh, can celebrate V-Day. But by then, the, president, the president's uh, health has continued to deteriorate. Of course, he should never have stood for a fourth term. I tell the story in the book. He didn't want to. 
He was so ill he could only concentrate for one or two hours a day. How he got to, took a, a battleship to Pearl Harbor to try and knock heads together between General, Marsh, uh, General MacArthur and, and Admiral Nimitz, uh, who were basically not really talking to one another. General MacArthur had refused ever to visit Pearl Harbor, ever, even though the president had rescued him from the Philippines. He sat in, in uh, Australia and islands and the president, you see the big thing about being president and commander in chief is when the president sends a signal saying, General MacArthur, be in Pearl Harbor on August 25, on my arrival, MacArthur finally, for the first time, went to Hawaii. But it is a dying president, MacArthur says to one of his uh, staff officers that uh, the president has six months to live and he was pretty accurate in that. And yet again, after he's won the election, more or less dying on his feet, he goes on another battleship back to the Mediterranean and then flying to Yalta. And failing, yes, to achieve all his ideals, his, uh, his ideal program, and certainly in terms of helping Poland, but getting the things that he felt were really important, getting the Russians to sign up to the things he felt really important, including the United Nations, the United Nations Security Council, some no notion of the... Uh, zones of occupation in Germany. And coming home so ill that when he reported to Congress in March of 1945, he could not stand. He'd always had these metal braces that were just firm enough for him to be able to at least stand at a podium and hang on. He can't even do that. And a few weeks later, he departs from West Warm Springs, where I was yesterday. And it's there that he dies on the 12th of April, uh, 1945. Um, should I read a couple of lines? Yes, no? <laughs> uh, injections of papyrivine nitroglycerin and nitrate were administered by Dr. Brun for the president's heart paradoxically was still pumping. He'd fallen forwards at his desk and complaining of a big, a terrible headache. He'd been carried to bed. The lady who was painting his portrait, Elizabeth Shumatov, shouted, screamed, call a doctor. They fetched Dr. Brun from down the bottom of the hill at Warm Springs from, who was in the, um, swimming baths, comes up, he gives him these medications. But the president had suffered a massive cerebral hemorrhage or catastrophic stroke. His blood pressure was 300 over 190. There was nothing despite attempted artificial respiration by the president's masseur that could be done except to wait for the end. In the event, the siege did not last long. Lucy Rutherford, his friend who'd become a widow, earlier, recognizing she was with Elizabeth 
recognizing immediately the end was approaching, told Elizabeth Shumatov to pack her easel and bags and summon the photographer Nicholas Robbins. There is a photograph which of the president looking so deathly ill, which is by Nicholas Robbins I have in the book. In the white Cadillac in which they'd come, they set off from the estate warm springs before the press could arrive. They would only hear whether or not the president had actually passed away when they stopped to telephone the little White House on their journey home. The flag at Macon, Georgia, was already at half-mast. The operator, before putting the call through, asked if they knew what had become national, in fact global, news at 3.35 p.m. local time, April the 12th, 1945. The Commander-in-Chief was dead. Thank you very much. happy to take some couple of quick questions please nobody say I have two questions <laughs> Hamilton, could you say I think they'll give you a microphone then other people can hear your question thank you could you tell us why you think it took 70 plus years for the story of FDR's prominence to come out I think the main reason is that Winston Churchill was such a fabulous writer. <laughs> and as a historian, I, you know, I can only feel, um, I don't feel envious because I, I so admire Churchill's prose. Uh, I think also the fact that Britain at the beginning of the war is, you know, one of the great democracies, but not just one of the great democracies, but it's an empire. It is the British Empire. By the end of the war, it's, it's almost already a has-been. And so the figure of Winston Churchill becomes tremendously symbolically important in terms of sort of nostalgia, that um, he represented Britain not just at his finest hour, <laughs> Churchill's, but at Britain's finest hour. And... Uh, so uh, I think between uh, British historians, even to this day, claiming uh, Andrew Roberts, who's a fine writer and so forth, claimed in a book that he wrote a few months ago that um, uh, it is quite, quite uh, untrue that Churchill had in any way sought to delay D-Day, as has been alleged. Well, I mean... I'm going to send him all three volumes. <laughs> Sorry, Graham is, oh, I can't. Indication. Any indication at the Tehran conference that uh, Stalin was going to back slack off on his uh, eastern front offensives if uh, Churchill and uh, Roosevelt didn't open a western front offensive? Uh, he never threatened it. It was just that it was quite clear that the Russians could not defeat Hitler on their own. And 
if Churchill had truly backed out and just insisted on continuing in the Mediterranean, and if American forces had, as General Marshall felt was the only alternative, had moved, uh, turned their priority to the Pacific, um, I think most historians would agree that uh, Hitler would have, uh, Stalin would have come to some negotiated settlement with, uh, with Hitler. I mean, this really was the critical moment of the entire war. And it is amazing how many writers and historians pick on little things that happened at Tehran to, to little anecdotes or so forth without recognizing just what a cardinal moment in modern history this was. I was even alive. <laughs> Admittedly, I was one year old. But <laughs> Oh. Thank you so much. Wow.